Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. The more I read this, the more I see and hear. Jesus has, in the process of moving from, um, I've forgotten whether he's going from Galilee or Jerusalem to Galilee. He's going from one end of Israel to the other. In order to do that, he had to pass through this country in the middle called Samaria. Samaria was a mixed racial nation. It was, they had come in the, in the great, in the exile, where the, the, the Israelites were taken into captivity. Um, they left, the Babylonians who took them, left a portion of the Jews in Israel and allowed them to intermarry with the foreign people that they brought in, the Babylonians. And the result was a people known as the Samaritans, Samar- from Samaria. And they were half Jew and half something else. So the issue that we begin to see here is not just a national issue. It's not just a, 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 an ethnic issue. It is a racial issue also. And we see that there was strife. They didn't talk to it. And the re- result of this was the Jews considered themselves pure before God because they had the law of Moses. And the Samaritans were Jews that had intermarried in, for generations now. And so the Jews looked down on them as if they were not pure the way the Jews were. They didn't have the knowledge the way the Jews did. They didn't have the law of Moses the way the Jews did. And so humans being as we are without Christ, they looked down their noses at the Samaritans. And the Samaritans being human (laughs) without Christ resented it and looked back the same way. So that's kind of the background that we have here And it's significant what Jesus does here. And we could go a number of different directions, but there's a particular direction that I believe God wants us to go. So what's happening here is Jesus is on his way through Samaria. And in order to do that, he's got to stop and take a rest because they've run out of food and he needs some water. And that's the background here. All right. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus were baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea, that's up north, and departed again, uh, that's the south, he left Judea and departed again to go to Galilee, that's up north. But he needed to go through Samaria, that was in the middle. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob had given, gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria, so it's a Samaritan woman, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He's he's not just thirsty, he's opening a conversation to go somewhere with it. His first disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? They didn't talk to each other. And especially in that culture, an unaccompanied woman did not address or speak to a male that was not related to her, let alone a Samaritan woman talking to a Jewish male. And he initiated the conversation, and she's saying, Basically, what's going on here? We normally shouldn't be talking to each other. Normally you wouldn't talk to me. What is this? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. And Jesus answered and said to her, now he's going somewhere with this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. So he's bringing her to another level. Notice he comes to her and he expresses a need that he has. There's a tremendous pattern here for witnessing. We're not going to go there with that. But he expresses a need. He's vulnerable to her. He's real with her. He doesn't just come up to her and say, Hey, I'm the Messiah. You need to get it straight. Because that wouldn't have worked. But he comes to her and says, Would you please give me a drink? That disarms her. And now she says, Well, how is it that you being a Jew speak to me? And he said, Well, if you knew who I really was and the gift of God that I had for you, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And she doesn't understand what that is. Verse 11. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Then where then are you going to get this living water? 
Are you greater than the father Jacob who gave us the well? In other words, our father Jacob, which was Isaac's son, he dug this well. Are you greater than Jacob that you can bring water out of this well and you don't even have anything to draw with? Of course, the answer was, yes, he is greater. Who gave us this well and drank from itself as well as his son and his livestock. And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Now remember where they are. They're out in the middle of Israel, of of Palestine, in the middle of the day where it's hot, it's dry. They're not walking on grass. They're not, you know, walking on pavements. It's rocks, hard. Some of you have been there and know what it's like. Hard, sharp. From what I understand, there's just rocks everywhere. And there's a well in the middle of this dry, arid place. And Jesus is talking about water. And he says, I've got a water for you that if you drink of it, you're never going to need to drink again. You won't need to come back out here for, for water. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, verse 14. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. Now though a woman is interested in whatever this is, even though she doesn't understand it, and she said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. He's leading her somewhere. He's leading her somewhere, not just physically, but spiritually. He's come and met her where she is. But he's met her where she is with the purpose of drawing her somewhere. And he's using natural material needs to do that. Let's proceed here and see what he, how he does this. Then the woman said to her, Well, sir, give me this water that I might not thirst nor come here to draw. So she says, Whatever this is you have, it sounds good to me. Give it to me. And now Jesus changes, it looks like he changes the subject. And he says, well, go call your husband. I don't believe he's telling her to call her husband so that he can get in on this good thing also because we're going to discover she doesn't have one and Jesus knows that. So he's not telling her to go get her husband to get him in on this. He's now trying to deal with something in her life because what he wants to do is to give her something, but before he can give it to her, he has to deal with something in her life so that she can be in a position to receive it. And he does it by asking questions. That he, By the way, I've showed this before. When God asks you a question, he's never looking for information. It's not because he doesn't know. When you tell him, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Am I glad I asked? No, he already knows the answer before he asks you the question. He's asking you the question because there's something you need to see that you don't see that he already sees. So don't leave the conversation until you at least begin to see what it is he's getting at because he's trying to get at something and he's, he's a master communicator. He doesn't always just go right into the issue because we often can't do that. We can't handle it. So he'll come in from a side route because he knows that's what it's going to take to reach you. Uh, King David's a great example of that because after he had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then committed a second sin to cover it up by having her husband murdered, then God wants to expose the sin in David. Why? So that David can repent of it, get things right, and go on with his life with God. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to him, and he doesn't start right out and saying, you know, you've sinned, you've committed adultery, you've killed, a, you've, you know, you've killed her husband. He tells him this parable, the story about uh, two sheep owners, one that has this all huge multitude of sheep and another that only has one or two, and the one that has the, all the sheep has killed the ones that belong to the old man that only has a couple. And David gets angry at this situation. See, he's now got his heart open to deal with an issue. And then just as he's about to say something, the prophet says, and you're the man. God opened him up so he could reach into his heart, confront him with the truth, and now bring healing and restoration in going on. And so that's a little bit of what's going on here. Okay. So he says, you know, all right, woman, go, go bring your husband. 
And the woman answered and said, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you have said, well, I have no husband. And now he's really going to get into it. For you've had five. And the one that you now have is not your husband. In other words, you're living in sin. In that you spoke truly. He's doing this because he's trying to get her to face truth so that he can lead her somewhere. Because if you don't, it all begins with facing truth. And it starts with you facing truth yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because <clears throat> if you won't be truthful with yourself, you won't be truthful with God. <clears throat> I was <clears throat> listening to somebody the other day on the, on a, on the radio here <clears throat> talk about um, how much in our media they don't... And it's not just news. It's our entertainment media. Do you know most of our entertainment does not deal in truth? It's all pretend. We look up to these great actors and actresses and all they're good at is pretending they're somebody else. But we worship them. We, we lift them up as, 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 as authorities in our life and all they're good is, is, what they're good at is faking it. Convincing you there's someone else can, can do some other things. And the reality is they're most times not like the people they pray, portray at all. And so... so um, How did I get off? Oh, yeah, okay. And so... I, this this interviewer was talking about an interview with Tiger Woods when Tiger Woods got into so much trouble. And the media person said, how is it that you can fool everybody with, with, your, you know, with not dealing in truth? And the commentator said, isn't that interesting coming from the media? But he said the, the key was the answer Tiger Woods gave was the only true answer he could. He said, the reason I was able to lie to everybody else is, first of all, I lied to myself. So it begins with being honest with ourselves, and that's where God begins with us. And it's a process. I mean, you know, you may be at that place today, and then God's trying to lead you somewhere else, and there may be other things in your life God wants to talk to you about and ask you some questions also. But it's always for a purpose, always for a purpose, and it's a good purpose. All right, let's go on. So he's, he's unveiled now that not only is she living in sin, but she doesn't have a particularly good track record. She's had five husbands and somehow they've all failed. Those relationships have all failed. So the woman said to her, Sir, I perceive you a prophet. That was pretty perceptive, wasn't it? <laughs> and now she's going to change the subject thinking that she's going to skirt around things when in reality she's going exactly where he wants to take her. She's going to begin to talk about praise and worship. And she's going to say, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought, one ought to worship. In other words, let's get into this theological debate about where the right place to worship is. Because when you get into a theological debate with somebody the focus comes off of you. So she's trying to change the focus of the conversation to a theological debate about praise and worship. But this is exactly where he wants to go with her. This is exactly where he wants to go with her. So she's saying, well, all right, you're a prophet, then you tell us the right place to worship. Because we Samaritans believe that on this mountain we should worship, and you Jews believe that in Jerusalem is the right place to worship. So you tell me as a prophet, where is the right place to worship? So her focus is on place, location, technique. Verse 21, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, for you worship what you do not know. A lot of people out there worshiping what they don't know. And we worship, but we know what we worship, for salvation is comes through the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, 
for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Stop there a second. Very powerful verse, and this is what we're going to begin to build on. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But regardless of what you don't know and what we know, something different's about to happen. There's a change coming from the way we've done things and the way you've done things. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers... That phrase has kind of rolled around in me and that's really part of the title for today's message. Because it kind of implies that what we have done before isn't true worship. And that's not necessarily true. True worship is what God wants at any given time. That's what I heard standing there during worship. You've heard me talk about this before, but we all come on a Sunday morning for, to be really honest with ourselves for different purposes. Some of us come because it's the right thing to do and we feel better about ourselves when, when we went to go to church. Now, I assume that's a very small minority because if you want to do that, then there's churches that can have much shorter services where you can feel good about yourself and get out onto the beach or whatever you want to do today without coming in here for a couple of hours. So I assume that that's a very, very small number of here this morning. But we come for all different kinds of reasons. Sometimes we come out of habit, it's just, and that's a good habit to have. Just come because that's what we do. It's why you build it into your children, because when they get older, their instinct is going to be to go to church, whether they feel like it or not, because this is what we do. We did that with our kids. We go to church. We didn't ask you if you like it or not. We go, we eat food, we have dinner, you have a bed to sleep in, we have house cover. we go on vacations, and we also go to church. As a family, this is what we, part of what we do. So it's okay to have a habit of that, but if you're just coming out of a habit, you're going to really miss what it's all about. But many of us come for what we get out of it. The teaching, I learn some things, I'm growing, and, and those are fine. We, those are good reasons to come. We come because I like the music, I like the choir, I like the sound, I like to be able to sing to God, and there's nothing wrong with that motivation. But if we stay there, if we stay with our motive for coming of what we experience and what we're going to get out of it, we're going to miss the most important and the most rewarding and the most exciting part of what this is all about. Because look at what he says here. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We'll talk about that later. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. That means when we come together on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever else we may come together, and we open our hearts to sing to Him and to worship and praise Him, there's something else going on in here other than what we're getting out of it. There's God's side of it. When we come in that door Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever, God's coming here with His desire and what He wants to get from this. And we very seldom think from God's side, well, what does this mean to Him? Because I, for whatever reason, we just think, well, God's omnipotent, God's all-powerful, God's all-knowing, God's omniscient, you know. God, God has no needs, no desires. We just come because we're supposed to do this for Him and we get things out of it, but that's not what the Word of God teaches us. Jesus is teaching us here that God is seeking something. It's a very strong word. God desires something. God is longing for something. He's longing for true worshipers. He's longing for true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And all we want to focus on, all I want to focus on for right now, today and the next time is going to be what God's heart is in this, what God's desire is. Not just in John chapter 4, but right here 
on June 23, 2013, in first service and second service, what God is here this morning desiring. God desires something. He longs for something. He's, he's craving something that we have the ability to give to Him. That we have the ability to give to Him who's given everything to us. True worshipers who worship Him in spirit. We'll talk about that down the road. And in truth, this is one of the reasons why Jesus had to deal with her about truth. To be honest with herself and then honest with the Lord about where she was in her life. All right. For the Father longs for, searches for, seeks for true worshipers. Again, there's all different types of worship. It's not saying, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. There's, the true worship here is what God's longing for. And what God is saying, I want at this time. Okay. Now, the Father does have desires. And we're going to see that the Bible is the story of God's longing for and paying the price so his desire can be satisfied. We're going to see it from the beginning to the end. The Bible is the story, among other things, of God's longing for and paying the price so that he can have this desire satisfied. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2. The book of Genesis, the name Genesis means book of beginnings. And just about every basic thing in the Bible has its roots or foundation here. Chapter 2, God's created the creation. In verse 7 it says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. That's his body. Formed it out of the material substance of this earth. And then he breathed, <clears throat> he breathed into this man's nostrils the breath of life. Now, where did that breath come from? This is the picture I get, and I'm certainly not saying this is exactly how it happened. But this is the picture I get. God, the word formed here is a Hebrew word which means rough formed. It's kind of the word that's used when a potter takes this huge lump of clay and is going to make a statue out of it or some piece of pottery out of it, and he takes a handful and he takes it and he works it and softens it like this. It's a, it's a word that requires hard force. When it talks about later on forming the woman, it's a different word that implies the use of the fingers and a delicate handcrafting, which is why generally women are more delicately handcrafted and men are rougher and under pressure and things like that. Okay, we're not going to go there. So God's formed this man, and this is the picture I get. But he's... He's a lifeless body. Like some of you this morning felt like. God's got him under the arms and picks him up and face to face and God goes and he goes God breathed into him the breath of life. Where did that breath come from? It's God's own breath that he's now breathed into this man. It's God's own life that he's now breathed. If you go through Genesis 1 and 2, you will find nothing else God created did he breathe his life into. And that created an intimacy and a relationship that this man had God's life within him. And then when the woman was taken out of him, the woman had God's life in him. Well, if the story ended there, we'd be happy today. But it doesn't. We go to chapter 3. And 
And now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. We've talked about this in different contexts before. That the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat nor touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We've talked about that he was trying to tell her that God was holding something back from him, from them and therefore to take it into their own hands. Verse 6, And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took the fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband, and he ate, and, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. See, they took care of themselves. They covered up their own nakedness. And they heard the sound of, listen to this, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool, or the breeze sometimes that's translated, of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's going on here? God has come looking for his man to be with. Notice it says they hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord. We come and sing and worship God because we want to enter into His presence. They were in His presence. And when they took things into their own hands and they broke God's commandment, they now were, they hid themselves. God didn't have to hide them. They hid themselves out of guilt and out of shame from the presence that they had dwelt in and experienced that was so sweet to them. Now the implication is here, it doesn't say that outright, but the implication here is this was a common everyday thing that God would come down and walk with them in the cool of the garden. This day he comes down and they're not where he expected them to be. They're now hiding. We're talking about what God desires. He's come down. His desi- he created this man and this woman in order to have this kind of intimate relationship with. And he's come down now to enjoy that relationship with them, spend this time physically in their presence, and they're not there because they listened to the voice of another and took things into their own hands and disobeyed him, God's commandment. Watch how God handles this. But the main thing we're looking at here is God's desire for them. And the Lord God called, in verse 9, called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now understand this, they weren't lost. God, it wasn't that God's asking for information. God's asking this really from two points of view, and there may be others. One of this, he's asking spiritually, Where are you? because you're not where you used to be. You're not in my presence. And he's also asking, just as Jesus asked the woman at the well, because he's going to give him a chance to tell the truth, to face the truth, and to get restored in all likelihood. But we never get there, because that's not what he does. Remember, God seeking true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in... and in and in truth. Jesus had to bring the woman of the well to facing truth about herself. God's now trying to bring this man and this woman to face the truth about themselves and what they've done. Because the lack of truth has created a distance where they can no longer feel comfortable in His presence. Verse 10. So he said, I heard, this is Adam's answer, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now we know from our other studies that they've been naked all along. This isn't when they suddenly were naked, it's when they discovered themselves separated from God. Up until now, 
all they could do is see themselves as part of who God is. Joined to Him, one with Him. See, this is why Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16, and 17, over and over again, talks about being one with the Father, and the Father one with Him, and then they are one with us, and we're one with the other. He's he's restoring this unity that was back in the garden where God the Father was one with His created man. And when they disobeyed Him, they separated themselves from His presence and hid themselves. Why did they hide themselves? Because they were ashamed and they were afraid. It all had to do with themselves. So now they're hiding from Him, knowing they need Him, but they're hiding from His presence. Verse 11, And He said, Who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Now God knows they ate it. He's not looking for information. He's giving them an opportunity to deal with this in truth. And look what the man does. And he's been doing it ever since. It's the woman you gave me. In other words, there are only three of us here. And I don't know which one's responsible. I just know it's not me. So he's shifting the blame to someone else. And when he does that, he's stepping out of truth over into protecting. See, he didn't just cover himself with leaves. He's covering himself with lies and deception. But look at the effect of it. It's creating a distance, a separation from the presence of God that He's lived in all whatever time it was before this happened and that the Father longs to walk in with Him and we'll see now longs to have restored the way it was. It's the woman you gave me and she gave it to me of the tree and I ate. I, I, you know... I was a good husband. I did what my wife told me to do. I won't go there. (laughs) And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. You think Flip Wilson initiated that? No, this goes back to the book of Genesis. The devil made me do it. I don't know how it happened. I just, you know, I'm just talking and next thing you know, this fruit's in my mouth. I don't know how it happened. The devil did it. We've been blaming him for things. In many cases, he had nothing to do with. We just did it ourselves. Oh, the temptation may have come from him, but nobody can make you do something Let me hear it clearly. Nobody can make you do something you don't ultimately choose to do. Because God can't make you do something that you don't want to do, or we'd all be saved. So if God can't make you do something, then certainly nobody else can. They can tempt you, appeal to what you already want, And we're not going to get into that, but if you look in the book of James chapter 1, he talks about that. And there's several other places it talks about it. All right. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, you're the only one left to talk to here. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this is the important part. Between your seed and her seed. In my Bible, that second seed has a capital S. Because that seed he's referring to is Jesus Christ coming to the earth. Because he goes on and says... He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. 
God is announcing in the very next verse his plan to restore this open door into his presence. God is announcing, because none of this took him by surprise, God is announcing that he has, he's initiating by his words a plan now that he is going to implement, and it's going to take thousands of years to do it, but God announces it then to restore that open door where we can come into his presence. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to satisfy the longing and the desire of his heart for which he created that man and that woman to begin with. He created them for his pleasure. He created them to be, to be in intimate relationship with. He, he, prepared, he prepared them so that they could come and worship him. Worship isn't just about how big God is. Worship is experiencing a relationship at a spiritual level that brings you closer and closer and closer and closer and closer in unity together spiritually. And that's the unity they had before they disobeyed God and sinned. And that unity has now been broken because they can't bring sin into that unity because God is absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. And to bring sin into that presence, it has to be judged and die. And since it was in them, they would have been judged and they would have, been die- they would have died. So God has to come up with a plan ultimately to pay for sin so that he can give us his righteousness so that we can become his children and that we can enter back into this union with him that this man and woman had to begin with when God created them and breathed into them his own breath. And this is what God is longing for. This is what God desires. This is what is on his heart when we come... Excuse me. This is on his heart when we come to worship him and to honor him and to praise him. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. This is where we're headed. This is the verse God put in my heart a while ago. I was praying and walking up that aisle over there and saying, God, why am I here? Why have you, why have you put me here? What is, what is my mission here? What is our mission here? And the Lord's... I'm in the wrong book. That's why it's not there. Now, what's happened, of course, is we, we go forward over a thousand years and, and God has brought... The children of Israel have ended up in Israel, in Egypt and they basically overstayed their welcome and they were put in bondage by a pharaoh that did not know Joseph who had led them down there. And now they've cried out to God to deliver them and God has delivered them. He's brought them out of Egypt through 10 incredible miracles. He parted the Red Sea. They've walked across the sea on dry land, about 2 million people, and then they saw their enemies swallowed up before them in one day. This was all done. They get out. They don't make, get out there too long before they start complaining that the water doesn't taste good. Then they start complaining, you know, their food ran out. Their, 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 you know, their, their picnic baskets things ran out. And so there's nowhere to buy food. So, you know, it's like God never thought of that when he called them out there. So they start complaining to God. And, and God, God brings them down to the southern part of what's now Saudi Arabia, to a mountain down there, and that's where we're going to pick up. Exodus 19, verse 1. Then in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they departed from Rephidim and come into the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. And look at this, and I brought you to myself. He didn't say, I brought you out. I brought you out to go somewhere. And what I brought you out to do was to come to me. I brought you to me. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice, there it is again, just like it was in the garden, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a, look at this, you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people on the earth, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, not one priest representing the nation, but you all will have access. A priest is someone that has access to the presence of God. You will all have access to me just as it was in the beginning. Why? Because this is the heart of God, the desire of God, the longing of God is to be with his people, not just among them, but to have an experience of his presence among them in their presence with him. And he said, I've brought you out of Egypt and I've brought you to this place. Why? Because I brought you to me. And if you will just listen to me and just do what I say, then I will make you into a special people because you are a special people to me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We've talked at that before. The word holy is a word that means something God has reached out, taken out of the crowd and set apart for himself to be special value to him. That's what makes it holy. And they were to be a people that were holy, set apart for him. Why? to satisfy this longing of his heart, this desire that he had from the beginning and that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4. And these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them the words of the Lord commanded them. So there's a process going on here because now the challenge is God spoken to the leader but it doesn't do any good if the people won't follow where God's telling the leader to go. So God has him speak to certain elders to explain this direction. And laid before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. What's that about? Because their clothes smelled? Well, they may have. But this is a process... Because they're going to come into the physical presence of a holy God. And God is saying, before you do that, you can't just saunter in and say, Hey, God, how you been? Glad you brought us out here. Here we are. Because he's a holy God. To be reverenced for who he is, that doesn't mean we fear him and run away from him, but it means we're conscious of coming to him and reverencing who this God is that's drawing us to himself. So God is saying, therefore, you need to consecrate yourself. That means set yourself aside from the things that you normally are doing, which get into your hearts and draw your attention and focus away from me. In other words, prepare yourself to come and stand before me. Verse 11, let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed for yourself that you don't go up on the mountain and touch its base, because whoever touches it will surely die. Why? Because they were unrighteous still, because Jesus hadn't died for them yet. Not a hand shall touch him, nor shall he be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether beast or field, he shall not live. That's if you cross the line and you come into my presence. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. You shall not come near your wives. Then it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning 
There were thunderings and lightnings and thick clouds on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people went, were in the camp trembled. And this is the verse we were leading up to. This is the verse that the Lord spoke to me about a year or so ago, walking up this aisle, when I'm saying, God, why are we here? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the focus? And the verse says this. And this is what I want you to catch in your heart. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with their God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. When we come here on Sunday morning, and we come here on Wednesday night, we have our own reasons for coming, and, and most of them are fine. But God has a reason of why he's called us here. God has a reason of why he gave us this place, why he's paid for it, why he's provided all the resources that we have that we can come and be here. You know, God's done that. It's not the smarts or cunning of Pastor Sam, Pastor David, or certainly not mine. God's done this. God's hand has been upon this from the beginning. God's protected us, brought us through all kinds of things, and here we are still today. Why? That was the question. Why did you do this for us when there are others you haven't done that for? Why did you do this? And this was the answer God gave me. Because it is a place where I want to come. I want to come. I want to come, I want to come, I want to come and meet with my people whom I have called out of the world and called together for just exactly this purpose. See, we think God is so focused on our serving Him and doing things for Him, and those are important. But there's a higher priority to God than the things we do for Him. And that's to look and find out what is the desire of his heart. And to begin, you begin to change your focus to satisfy the desire of his heart. And I'll show you in a minute what will begin to happen. So they come out to the foot of the mountain. God comes down on the mountain, thunder and lightnings. And then God calls Moses up on the mountain. In chapter 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Let's go to verse 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunders and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us what you hear from God, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to them, Don't be afraid. God's come down to test you. In other words, to to prove what's in you that his fear may be upon you. That's not fear to run away from. He just said, don't fear him so you'll run away. This verse shows you there's two types of fear. There's a fear of God that we run away from him because of who he is. And there's a fear of God that reverences us, him, that reverences and draws us near. Because notice Moses feared him, but Moses didn't run away from him. Moses ran to him. So there's two different fears they're talking about here. They had a fear of of God. Moses had a reverence for him. Completely different. The result was, instead of coming for what God called them to, they turned and walked away and they said to Moses, you go talk to him. You worship him for us. And then you share the experience with us. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap. We can let others do our worship for us and enjoy their experience of it instead of entering into what God's called us for, which is for each of us to be priests unto our gods, each of us to worship Him from our hearts. And this is what God longs for from each of us. Say, well, why can't we do it in our home? Because there's something happens when we collectively come together. We inspire each other. It just, 
We're at a time now when our family's beginning to gather for kind of a family time. It's wonderful. The kids begin to come home and gather together, and it blesses us. Well, it blesses God when the kids come together and worship Him. We're seeing this morning that the focus has to be on this is satisfying a longing of His heart, a longing of His heart. Let's go quickly. Over, we're not going to turn there this morning, but if you go to Acts, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, you'll find that the writer of Hebrews shares, well, we come to a mountain, we're to come to a mountain now. But this mountain's not like the mountain they came to. This doesn't have thunder and lightning on it. It's Mount Zion. It's the presence of God. It's filled with innumerable saints who've been made righteous. In other words, the mountain we come to the God's on that God's drawing us to is a mountain we have access to without that kind of thunder and lightning on it. There's an open door. Jesus is the way. If you look in chapter 10, 9 and 10 of Hebrews, you'll see Jesus, he's, he, he's made a way for us. And what's that way to? It's not just into heaven. It's a way into the presence of God to satisfy the longing of his heart. And here's the other thing that God showed me about that. See, God wants to come here. So well, we feel his presence now. Yeah, it's nothing like what he wants to do. It's nothing like what he wants to do. And as we begin to respond to what I believe God's calling us to do, and I'm laying a foundation, we're going to, God, show me a way to kind of all lead us together there. As we do that, then what you're going to find is there's going to come a point, it was a, a, a missionary years ago, Terry Mize, I heard say this. He says, it's as if... God just has this smile and reaches down to kiss the earth and we get caught in the middle. When we begin to come together to satisfy that longing of his heart, and it's not just something that's coming from here, it's coming from our hearts to him. There's going to come a point where God's going to respond because the scriptures give us examples of that. In Acts chapter 1 and then chapter 2, and he says, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until they were due with power from on high. They waited together in an upper room and they ministered to the Lord and they waited on him. And in Acts chapter 2, God responded. And the Holy Spirit was poured out and filled them and filled the place where they were. Acts chapter 13, they're gathered together in Caesarea. And, and, and they're, they're gathered together uh, and there's about five of them there. And they're just ministering to the Lord. They're just worshiping him. They're loving on him. They're giving to him their heart, their, their voice. And the Spirit of God speaks to them and says, Two of you, Paul, Barnabas, separate them under the ministry to which I've called them. Later on in the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter's on a roof waiting for lunch, just worshiping God, just lifting his heart up to God. And he has a vision, and then later God speaks to him a message that literally opens the gospel to the Gentiles. The point is, when we begin to satisfy this longing of his, as a loving father, he cannot help but come down, manifest himself to us, and begin to meet needs like you can't begin to imagine what God can do when his presence comes. Remember what his presence did to Moses, because Moses was up on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights without eating any food or drinking any water. And I've told you before, you well know, you can go 40 days without food, but you can't go 40 days without drinking water. What sustained him? He was in the presence of the source of life himself. Imagine if the source of life began to manifest himself here in a tangible way. Sickness couldn't remain. Deformities couldn't remain. Who, I don't know. God hasn't shown me what's going to happen because that's his business. What God's shown me is to begin to lead this congregation in a direction. One more scripture and we'll close. Leviticus 26. When the Rackleys were here, she stood up here and she said, the Spirit of God gave her this scripture. I almost came unglued. Almost. Because this said what I saw. Leviticus 26, starting verse 1. You shall not make for yourself idols for yourself, 
Neither carved images nor sacred pillars you shall rear up for yourselves, nor you shall you set an engraved stone in your land to bow down to. In other words, you shall not worship anything but me. You shall keep the Sabbath, and look at this, and reverence my sanctuary. How do we treat his sanctuary? Is it like any other assembly place where we come in chewing gum? I was praying this week and I found a bunch of candy wrappers on the floor. I mean, we get casual about the things of God and that begins to reflect the attitude we have about Him Himself. Reverence, notice, my sanctuary. Reverence, my sanctuary. For I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes, well, let's go over to, um, for time's sake, let's go over verse 9. And if you do these things, I will look on you. The New King James says favorably, but Beverly shared out of the Amplified. It means I will lean towards you. And that's what I saw. I saw when she read that. That's the thing I've been seeing. God wants to reach down to us and embrace us or kiss us or whatever it is he wants to do. He wants to lean towards us. Imagine God leaning towards you. God coming to seek you out instead of us having to find how to seek God out. Scripture says, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Lean towards you. And multiply you. You will be fruitful. Confirm my covenant with you. And you shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. So there will be a time to take the old, thank it, and move on because you've got to make room for the new. I will set my tabernacle my physical dwelling place among you and my soul will not abhor you. I will walk among you just as he did in the garden. This is what he wants to do. And I will walk among you. And look at this. And be your God. That little personal pronoun, your, means belong to. I will be God who belongs to you. And look at the other side of that. I will be your God and you shall be my special people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The King James says a peculiar. That doesn't mean weird that means special, specially picked out and identified, that we should do what? Proclaim the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, his marvelous light. This is what I believe with all my heart. God wants, he's already been preparing, already been working, It's already in some people's hearts because I've talked to some, I've heard from some. But God's saying to me now, it's time as the shepherd that you begin to sound forth the call so that the sheep's heads can begin to come up and we can all begin to move together in one direction. Now, to do that requires something that we don't like. It's change. We may not always like the way things are or we may... But whether it's good or bad, we would rather not change because what's change going to mean? But in order to do this, in order to follow his voice, we're going to have to be willing to change the way we do some things and especially the way we do praise and worship. So we're going to do that. I can't tell you what they all are right now. I don't even know all of them. I just know I've met with the music ministry and explained to them that we're going to begin to see some changes. 
Some of them will require changes up here because what God's only going to want to do is pull things out of you and me. And the more that's done up here, the easier it is to come, the easier it is to come and allow others to do the praise and worship and we just observe or enjoy what they do whereas true praise and worship comes out of you in here. In order to get to that place, we're going to have to put aside some things that we've gotten very comfortable with and bring them back in in an appropriate way but differently so that it's always coming from us. And when we begin to do that, it will be a little uncomfortable at first because we're not used to doing that. But what will happen is God will begin to work in us and draw us because this is to satisfy the desire of his heart. Praise God.